Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Material Matters hosted by me, Grant Gibson. In each podcast, we're meeting a maker, a designer or architect who's intrinsically linked to a particular material or technique, discovering how their craft shape their lives and careers. It gives me huge pleasure to kick off this series by talking to Bill Amberg, renowned leather designer, best known for his bags, of course, but also for his work with architects. Recent projects have included the extension of the RA with David Chipperfield Architects and the extraordinary Queen's Jubilee Galleries in Westminster Abbey. Bill, thank you very much for joining us. Hello there. Um, It's very exciting to be involved in the first ever production (laughs) of the Grant Gibson podcast. Well, it's my distinct pleasure. Thank you. Um, Well, should we kick off straight away with the obvious question is, you're known for leather. How did your relationship with leather begin? Um, it was a, a kind of a, a curious uh, material choice, I guess. I'd, I grew up near Northampton. Um, my mother was a designer, worked for Alvo Alto. Mm. And um, she and my father worked, it had a, a lift and escalator business in Northampton called the Express Lift Company. So I was kind of um, surrounded by designing and making, I guess, from an early age. And um, not being particularly good at school, but being keen on designing and making things and very much encouraged by my parents, um, they got me involved in all sorts of things, metalwork, woodwork, etc. My grandfather, who, who lived at home as well, and my father both had a workshop each, so they were keen making, making things. Um, and my mother used to go to Northampton Market and get bags of leather scrap and bring them back home for us to mess around with. How did your mum end up leaving Finland and Alto for Northampton, I wonder? Love. Love, yeah. Fell in love with my dad. Mm. And they'd met in London before, and then when my mother moved to Finland to go and work for Alto, um, I think they, my father kept up a fairly constant barrage of um, love letters, wooed her home, and there you go. Very good. So uh, being from Northampton, was it always going to be leather in that case? Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, it wasn't, a, it was literally something I played with as a boy. I mean, we're talking kind of, I suppose, sort of 10 to 14 years old. And I was, it was amongst lots of other materials. But um, then after, after school, I um, decided I wanted to go traveling. I funded that with... Uh, a stint on the oil rigs in the North Sea. And then when I got abroad, it was starting in New Zealand and basically working my way back, it was always something I could do. And leather work was just one of, the, one of my skills. But it did mean that every town I went to, I could look up the cobbler or the saddler or the whatever. Can, can I take you back a moment? Because um, did, did you learn to make things at school? Was leather part of the curriculum? Uh, not in work? the curriculum. But there was, again, there was one teacher at school who did, do leather classes, which I did, which was a way of getting out of games, you know, and um, that seemed to work for me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just, so I was kind of interested, but I also did woodwork and metalwork and all kinds of stuff. Mm. Um, Yeah, and it kind of, as it just grew as a material, and as I did more and more of it on my travels, um, I just became more intrigued with it. But I worked for, like, Everybody, saddlers, cobblers, you know, hippie sandal makers, hippie belt makers, all kinds of stuff. But it was intriguing. And then when I got to Adelaide, 
very strangely, my cousin, who's Australian, um, was teaching leatherwork, completely weird coincidence, at Canberra School of Art. And she introduced me to a lady called Gay Wilson in some studios in Adelaide called the Jam Factory, which I believe is still going. And um, I worked for her as an apprentice. And that was extraordinary. And she taught me enormous amounts. So what kind of age were you at this point? I was uh, 19, 20. And how come you didn't go to university? Was that never on the agenda? Yeah, I just or? I never got the results that would have mm. got me into any university. And so the obvious step then is to go on to oil rigs. <laughs> well, I needed some cash. And um, I, I think, uh, you, know, I, you know, and I was quite adventurous. And, and of course, then this is 1979, I guess. You know, the oil boom was happening and the oil rigs were a big draw. They, you know, it was something that was around and being spoken about. And, you know, so it just seemed like a good idea. So I just went up there with my holdall full of kit and booked into the YMCA in... Or was it YMCA? Yeah, YMCA in, in Aberdeen. OK, OK. So I'm, I'm, I'm digressing because I need to know more about... Uh, about Gay and what what was her studio like? What so the Jam you? Factory was a really interesting interesting bunch of studios. They had uh, glass, ceramics, weaving, um, lots of jewellers, um, and it was a really big and well set up studio. It was an exciting place to be. And Gay was making at that stage she was making jockeys bespoke jockeys boots. Um, some wallets and belts, um, some custom bags for people. Uh, so I just kind of started helping her, but she taught me really rigorously the the fundamentals of leather technique. Um, but she was very experimental herself and had no particular boundaries as to what you could do with the material and was fascinated by... Um, everything that was going on around. So I was very involved in talking to ceramicists, talking to glass blowers, and there were lots of different ceramicists from fine bone china to huge terracottas. You know, everybody was there making different things. And were you able to do your own stuff while you were there? Yeah, I did. I started to do my own stuff with her, and that involved... Um, uh, there was a visit from, an, from, a, from a Canadian, I think he's Canadian, a guy called Rex Lingwood, who's um, a sculptor, a leather sculptor. And that was quite inspiring because he was doing um, moulded, wet moulded leather. And so that kind of got me going down a path. And then I started to make um, jewellery pieces or sculptural jewellery pieces. And that led to an exhibition where I put on a, you know, and I was making breastplates and neck pieces and, you know. I didn't was there know. a huge market for those? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> But, you know, I sold a few things and it was interesting <laughs> trying and, and it was it was curious times. I mean, it was, you know, I was getting paid for, for my work and um, with Gay and, you know, it was cheap. It was a cheap place to live. Um, but I and I learned an enormous amount. Um, and, um, yeah, kind of it set me on my way. Then when I went off to Southeast Asia after Australia, I then went specifically to look at a few um, leather workers who were around and started to learn a bit more 
So you, you definitely decided by this stage yeah, that leather was going to be your career? Well, yeah, sort of. I mean, I was, it was just some, again, it was something I was very interested in. But when I came back to England, that pretty much kicked it off. Because when I got back to England, I um, mean, I guess, eight, 83, I guess, um, the, uh, you know, my dad sort of said, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, leather, obviously. And I kind of thought, oh, okay. And that, that's when I found out about um, the Waterside Workshops, which are down in Rotherhithe Street, which was a cooperative um, set of studios. And um, I started down in there, got a tiny, tiny little um, studio um, through Dad's connections in Northampton with the, with the shoe industry guys. I got hold of a sewing machine and a skive machine. And just started, but I realised pretty obviously that I wasn't going to be able to start doing sculptural jewellery and leather. Um, but thought I'd do bags because it seemed like a good commercial way of of, um, of, of using my skills. And um, started pretty well straight away. I, I went to Liberty's straight away. And for whatever reason, they took a collection of bags that I designed and made. Um, then I had the same thing with Paul Smith. I went to see Paul Smith, and he pretty well straight away took took um, collection bags. And then I continued with Paul Smith um, for years, nearly ten years, designing and making all their bags. It sounds kind of frictionless. You, you know, you come to London, you walk it was, into Liberty. It was very How lucky. It was it was very it was very lucky. It was just good timing. And I think London then, I mean, London in the eighties was cheap, very active good fun you know there was great music going on there's lots of people involved you know all those characters like Tom Dixon and Andre Dubroy and Mark Brazier Jones and all those guys were making things Ron Arad and were you working um, with them at the time I was doing but I didn't I wasn't working with them I knew them all um, but you know everybody was around and then NATO I started the first architectural job was I was good friends with some with architects and um, Nigel Coates had a, um, a group of architects called NATO mm. and um, Narrative Architecture Today. And, and I did a project with them for an exhibition. And Ron bought the table for his gallery then. And, how, did um, you, how were you meeting these people? Or just, so? you know, socially. Just mates. They were just mates. There was a, a, a quite an interesting squat in... Um, in Vauxhall, there was that in Bonington Square, and there was quite a lot of guys around there. So it was an interesting, and they they were all teaching at the AA as well. So I got involved in that a little mm. bit. Mm. Um, Did you always have an interest in architecture? In that oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. I mean, Mum was really passionate about it, as mm. was Dad. I mean, you know, they were it was always it was always talking about it, and and, and our house was. You know, I mean, mum designed it and dad built it, basically. And was there always an ambition to combine leather with architecture in that case? I think it was... I think what was interesting, and I kind of looking back on it, it didn't happen, it wasn't, certainly wasn't planned. I mean, none of my career has been planned. But I think just looking back on it, it was quite... Um, I'd, Gay had really exposed me to lots of different techniques. She was always messing up with techniques, mixing up stuff. And the more you realise about leatherwork itself is that it, it is this 
you know, it's, it's, quite, it's got quite a formal technical structure to many different elements. So bookbinding, saddlery, shoemaking, case making, um, all of these things have their own techniques. And, and historically, those, those techniques are quite, um, they hold fast to their own individual, you know, avenue. But I was very interested in all of them. I was interested in learning a little bit about bookbinding and doing some saddlery and doing some making shoes, making jockey's boots. Um, I was making whips, you know, plaited stock whips and stuff, um, hand-stitching wallets, all these things. And so you suddenly sort of realise, hey, hang on a minute, I'm touching all of these elements of this rather wonderful craft. And so you start to build up quite a big repertoire of stuff. And that put me outside of the normal leather industry, I guess, because I wasn't a bookbinder and I wasn't a shoemaker. And I wasn't a saddler. Um, but I was interested in all of it. And then coupled with an interest in architecture, you can start to think about all of those things in scale. And that's what I find interesting, is to take those technical, you know, technical things and expand them, explode them onto a, onto a bigger scale. So you suddenly start to think about the scale of a building or the scale of an interior uh, and, and then how can you use, what can you use, where would you use it? And that also is reflected in material choice as well as the technique that you might be using. So um, can we talk about what it is you love about leather? Leather really is the most fantastic material to work with. I mean, it's got, it's a very sympathetic material as soon as you start working with it. Um, it can do extraordinary things. I mean, I think as a material... There's an enormous array of different types of material. Most people's association with leather is a car interior or a sofa or something. Um, in fact, there are every type of material, particularly the sort of vegetable tanned variety, which I absolutely love, which is a saddlery material. And it's a kind of, when I say it's benign, I mean, it's a byproduct for a start. It's a sustainable byproduct of a material. So you're working in this very benign space. You know, if, if st- people stopped eating meat, there would be no leather industry. People, we don't use anything here that hasn't been eaten. You know, that, that's a sort of given. Um, and I think when you start to work it, just the way it really helps you along, you're not fighting with it ever. You know, it's, it can, it, it contracts as much as it expands. Um, it, it's moldable when it's wet. It, you can play with every different type of sheen, touch, finish, handle. All of those things are variable. Lots and lots of variables with it. And that's what makes it an exciting thing to work with. And, and again, I think it's in architecturally, it's really intriguing for, for those reasons. There's so many variables in terms of texture and finish and colour and ways of colouring it. Um, and that's before you even start on... You know, the, the different great natural grains of a goatskin, a sheepskin, a cow, a bull, a buffalo, an ostrich, they're all completely different. You know, so there's a, a huge variety of stuff that you can play with. So can I ask how the business has changed over the years? I mean, obviously, you have your bags at Liberties and Paul Smith. You're doing stuff with NATO. And how did you combine those two different threads of the business? Well, th- then it was it was kind of it was quite muddled in a way. I mean, there was, again, there was no planning, but I was by and large making bags. 
it was a bad, it was an accessories business and it started I started doing you know one project a year I mean I did my first leather floor in 1986 which is still down now it's a really really beautiful beautiful floor where is that in Thurlow Square right a house in Thurlow Square it's okay. absolutely beautiful um and then you know then the next year it was like two projects and the next year it was three projects and so on so it just kind of built very slowly in parallel meanwhile the bag business was was growing really really well and and particularly in japan and you had your own shops obviously yeah, well, when, when, did, I, when did that I think happen? i uh, people ask that i can't really remember that well i guess in the sort of mid 90s i opened my first store in in notting hill um, again, when Notting Hill was a different sort of place, it was it was much more artisanal than it is now. Um, you know, all the antique shops were still along Westbourne Grove, and it was a bit more of a funky place. Um, but yeah, I opened my first shop there. They opened a shop in New York. We had a shop in um, Nolita, um, which was fantastic. You know, we were and, and we had we we're doing lots of business in Japan. We had a um, yeah, quite a growing business. And then the architectural business at that stage also was getting larger, but it was very much the second fiddle to, to, the, to the accessories business. So when did you start employing people? And, and what kind of problems does that present, I wonder, for a maker? Well, the first person I employed with was my sister because um, I, I, was, I still am rubbish at numbers and writing organizing um but she was very very organized so she did all that side of the business um and then i also had some um i then got help in the studio as well i got i got other other craftspeople coming in um specifically for bags that is so they were doing you know machining and what have you for the bags um and that kind of slowly grew and then also, I, and then in, uh, in about 1990, I went to, quite by chance, I went to London Business School for a year. Um, they had quite an inspired um, uh, course at the London Business School called the Firm Start Programme, which was for existing companies. You had to have an existing company, but they taught you everything that you need to know about running a business and that was really interesting and especially from my point of view because I never thought I'd go to university or anything like that so it kind of was like very cool to suddenly be able to go to a business school Um, but it was fascinating and that really kind of revolutionized my thinking about how to run the business and what the business should be and how it should work and that's interesting so how how did it change no just kind of through structural things and um, some basic understandings of, of what makes a business tick. Um, it also really led me into export. It really got me going into exporting. Um, you know, so I, was, I did a lot of trade fairs. You know, obviously these are men's fashion trade fairs primarily. Um, and it made the business profitable. It made the business make some money, which is previously it was just completely hand-to-mouth. Mm. And, and that kind of focus is quite useful. Suddenly, when you're beginning to make some money, it's quite exciting. You know, it's, it's not all such a grind, or at least the grind has a purpose rather than just being a grind. I mean, was there a point you were exporting to Japan, you had shops in the States, in London, etc. 
the architecture practice was or side of the work was going uh, well. I mean, did you still have time to make? Do you make now? Well, th- then it was that was interesting actually because in about, I guess, um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I guess towards the end of that period, around the 2000s, I was getting, I wasn't making enough. And um, I got really disillusioned with the whole thing and found the whole thing really, really tedious, actually. And um, just found myself becoming a businessman, which was never my intention. Um, And in fact, then what I did is the first thing I did is I built a big workshop at my house in my garden and that's still standing and it's still very much a kind of you know haven for me where I can go and make stuff um, and that proved to be I mean sort of for my mental health that proved to be really useful because then I had a, my own personal little studio where I could go and explore things and make things and experiment again um, and, and and in fact it really helped the business because then I started to come back into work and with experimental pieces for people to you know develop and make up and I think that it really helped a lot um and that's I still hold to that now you know I I, I've since then I've employed carefully people to run the business for me so that I I really do stay on the making and designing side um and and I still love my my workshop at home it's great it's a really nice place to go and you know play and and develop things the studio how do you structure it how does it work i wonder well when i used to go to japan i was very influenced by um yanagi and there's a fantastic book called the unknown craftsman which is about um the the importance of making principally and about how beautiful things are improved by continually making them and that I find very I really think that's important and and consequently I have built the studio around the workshop so this the the workshop is central to everything everybody involved in accounts sales design everything they have to walk past walk through associate with people making things all the time and that's vital. And it, and it engages everybody. And it really engages the way people think about the business. And it's, this is really crucial for everything that we do. We have experimental days about every six weeks, I suppose, where we everybody gets to put an idea in the hat. Um, anybody from any area of the business. And then once we decide what we're going to do, everybody has a go at making that one thing. So it could be weaving, it could be um, braiding, it could be moulding, it could be... I mean, all of this, the stack desk came out of it, the the, um, structural leatherwork came out of it. All of these ideas get developed on these experimental days. Um, and, And that kind of... Yeah, that informs a lot of the thinking. And and then there's cross-training. So we do a lot of cross-training because people will have, you know, people will follow down a specific line. You'll suddenly get somebody who just really gets into hand-stitching. 
and then I just really actively encourage them to get into hand stitching. We get somebody else who's really good at braiding now, loves braiding. So on certain days, we'll have cross training days where that person will then teach everybody everything that they know about braiding and or everything they know about hand stitching or wet molding or and I do that I mean I teach the wet I do the wet molding I do the braiding I'm pretty good at both of those things um but that really helps too so you get this kind of you get this kind of um energy of 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 making and of excellence which I think is really important obviously there's, there's loads of talk about uh further education courses closing down there being a crisis in in making education I mean, do you find it easy to to find people to work with you i do find it easy to find people only because i think now we we do represent a very interesting studio to a lot of people and we get a lot of CVs. We get a lot of people wanting to come and work here. With what kind of skills? Well, all sorts. I mean, even now we've got, you know, we've got, um, we've, we've got a bookbinder. We've got a furniture maker. We've got an architect. Um, uh, we've got a guy from fashion retail. You know, they're all working here and loving it. And, and so it's, I don't look out for bag, you know, people who come from fashion colleges anymore. Um, you know, I just don't find them necessarily being the the people who have broad enough um, understanding of what we're about. I mean, because that's what I need. I need people who who have a real desire to explore. Well, on that on that um, theme of exploration, uh, last year's London Design Festival, you launched this kind of digitally printed leather. Can we talk about why you did that and the technology behind that? Well, that that is interesting because it's a kind of, it's a strange thing for me because I've never sold anything I haven't made before, so that was kind of curious in itself. But it did strike me that the technology was there and being underutilized, and I'm very interested in technology. I think technology mixing technology and craft, I think, is really intriguing. And I like to see it now. I like seeing people using CNCing and then overlaying it with handwork. And, you know, I think, well, why not? It, it, it's completely valid. And, and also I was very quick to start using um, vacuum form plastics and stuff like that within my bags. Um, but if I couldn't pull a shape or make a shape or get a shape, I would, you know, create a skeleton and then pull the leather over it. And I suppose those kinds, that kind of thinking was um, new and using castings, you know, using aluminium castings and things within bags and, and stuff. So I was already there in terms of like when these pieces of technology came along, I was really keen to latch hold of them. Um, and the same with laser cutting. We, we were doing a lot of laser cutting very early on and CNC. We do a lot of CNC stuff. We've really developed that a lot now. Um, you know, working leather over a CNC shape. Um, and I think when I started to see digital printed leather, um, it was, it's really interesting. It was a really interesting idea, um, but not done well. That was the thing that kind of irked me. You know, everybody had a print idea, but nobody did it properly. Um, and again, I was interested in it in scale. I wanted to see it in scale. I mean, you can work, 
well on a one foot square panel, you can do something quite interesting with leather and printing. But I wanted to see it in scale because I think that's when you start to see things in a different way. And so I started talking to one of the tanneries that we work very closely with about whether we could develop a leather specifically to accept the digital print. So rather than just printing on a piece of leather, let's forget about the print and really focus in on the, on the leather itself, on the tannage, and make a tannage purely for the printing process. And then look at each individual colour within the, the print, printing process and work on those individual colours in relation to the leather so that the leather and that one colour is compatible across the CMYK range. Um, and it took two and a bit years to, mm. to develop. Um, and then when it came out, it was like, wow, this is fantastic. And, and then what are we going to do with it? So then I spoke to friends of mine, all designers who I'd worked with and who I liked their work, and, and, and also who I knew would come at it you know, intellectually from a, from a nice point of view and look at it and think, this could be interesting. Um, and, uh, yeah, so Tom Dixon, Faye Toogood, um, Natasha Baradon, uh, Timorous Beasties, and, um, and um, Alexandre Champalamo all came out with designs, all quite different. And then we launched it at the Design Festival. So, kind of final question, really. I mean, where do you see the future of the studio? We've got two, got a really beautiful project in uh, 160 Aldersgate, where we are doing, we've been asked to design and make all of the main reception furniture, um, which is a great project. And we've come up with some really interesting ideas that I think are being pushed along at the moment. And that'll be quite new, and there'll be big pieces. Um, We've also got another big project in the city um, where we were asked to design... Um, and now we're making the main reception lobby walls and ceiling area. So that's another really interesting project. We've been exploring how we can work with structural leather, using leather structurally, and that's going to be really interesting. We've now developed another piece of furniture around that, so that'll be quite interesting. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be an exciting year, I think, and a new studio. We've got to move studios, which is a shame. Oh, gosh. Um, this street has been bought by a new landlord and they I don't think they want makers here anymore, which is a shame. Reflection on London making life, I fear. Yes, well, that sounds like it's a subject <laughs> for another podcast. I, I think we are going to literally watch this space in that case. Yeah. Um, Bill, thank you so much for being our first guest. I really appreciate it. It's a great pleasure, Grant. Thanks you.